It's a very big schut for me to be here uh, today. I've heard really wonderful things about the seminary, and um, and I just met your wonderful principal, uh, who I see is imbued with a with the love of all of you, her Talmidot. I'd like to thank Rabbi Geli, who's uh, actually my daughter. I have three daughters that go to Manhattan High School, and they're all enamored by Rabbi Geli. He's, you know, he's it. So, uh, and I'm also very uh, taken by him, and uh, he arranged this, uh, this opportunity for me that I could be able to come and speak to you today, and so I appreciate that as well. So we're standing... Uh, a few days before Yom Kippurim, and I have a mystery that I'd like you to help me solve. There's an Arizal, the Ariyah Kadosh, says a very cryptic statement, a very mysterious statement about Yom Kippurim. The Arizal says that Yom Kippurim is really Yom. Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is Yom Kippurim. It's like a day like Purim. Yom Kippur and Purim are very, very similar, he says. They're like two sides of the same coin. And that's a mystery to me. Because if a person, when you hear these things and then you think about these things, it should bother you. Because what does that mean? Could you think of two days on the Jewish calendar that are more dissimilar, in a sense, than Purim and Yom Kippur? Yom, Yom Kippur is a day you stand in shul all day in the Beit HaKnesset, and you, uh, the men are wearing kittles, and they're wearing their white suits, and whatever, the white yarmulkes, and they're praying, and they have their machzorim, and, uh, and crying, and vidui, and uh, it's a very, very serious day. It's a very, very serious day. Purim is the opposite. Purim is probably the happiest day, the most uh, joyous day, the day that... It's the opposite. It's the day that you're doing, uh, you're drinking and you're eating and you're, uh, you're having a good time and everything is different. Purim is a day that you're able to uh, dress up in, in, in funny uniforms and clothing and costumes, and that's not Yom Kippur. But yet the Arizal says, mysteriously, that Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. It's a day like Purim, and I don't know what that means. Would anyone like to suggest anything? Uh, any ideas? That's very, very good. Anyone else? Any other ideas? It's a good day. It's not, it's not scary. It's more like I'm getting another chain. That's also a beautiful thing. You know, I, my grandmother, Allah Shalom, when I was a little boy, I said to her, what's your favorite day of the year? And she said, she said, it's Purim. 
I mean, she says it's, she says it's Yom Kippurim. She says it's, Yom Kippur was her favorite day of the year, and I didn't understand that. And, um, but as I got older, I understood it, that it's exactly like you're saying, that Yom Kippur is really not a scary day. It's a beautiful day. It's a day that you have uh, tremendous opportunity, and it's a very joyous day if you understand really what Yom Kippur is. It's a day you could just stand in shul, sit in shul, and connect with God, and it's a beautiful day. So I definitely would agree with both of your answers, but I'm happy that you didn't give my answer away because then I'd have nothing to say. We want to have a whole shear here, so we don't want anyone uh, taking away my thunder. Um, I found even an earlier source than the Arizal connecting Purim and Yom Kippur. And that's the Abu Dram. Abu Dram was a Rishon. He lived in, in, the, um, in the 1300s. And he wrote a very, very famous commentary on Sidur. So if you ever want to look up something on Sidur from a Rishon, probably the first one that you would look at is the Abu Dram. He writes that if you notice in the Machzor, in the Shemana Esrei of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there's a constant word that appears all the time, almost like a refrain at the beginning of many paragraphs of the, of the Machzor. Anyone know what that word is? One word that just keeps on starting off many paragraphs. Yes, I don't know. Excellent. I was hoping that the Sephardic Machzor was the same as the Ashkenaz Machzor. I, I assume it is. So, Uvechein, Uvechein ten pachtacho, Uvechein tzadikim. It keeps on saying the word Uvechein, Uvechein, Uvechein. And we do this every Shemana Esrei on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim. And it's a little funny, like, where does that word come from? Uvechein means, and therefore, and therefore. That's not a normal way of starting off a paragraph. So the Abu Dram says that this word comes from Megillat Esther. Megillat Esther, Esther famously says when she says, I'm going to go before Achashverosh, even though I know that I could be put to death, even though I know that it's not a smart thing to do because, you know, it's Achas Dasa Lahamis, I would get killed. If you're not invited to go before the throne, you're going to get killed. But yet, Uvechein Ava El HaMelech Asherloi Kadas. And therefore, I'm going to go in front of him. I don't care. I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to go before the king. And whatever happens, happens. The Abudram says, and I'll quote you his words, that the reason why we say in the Machzor is because now is the day of judgment. We are coming before the King of Kings. As Esther was preparing herself to come before the Melech, Achashverosh, Lahavdil, we are coming before the King of Kings. And so to get us in that frame of mind that on Yom Kippur, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we're standing in front of the King of Kings, we borrow that phrase or that word that Esther used in order to put us in an understanding that we're not just 
standing in shul, we're standing in front of the king of kings. I'm going to come before the king, and, and each of us individually, we're coming before the king of kings. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim is all about. So what I would suggest is that you see an earlier source making some sort of connection between Purim and Yom Kippurim before the Arizal. We see that there's this connection. We see that Uvechein Uvechein, Uvechein of Yom Kippurim, Rosh Hashanah, and Uvechein of Purim, Uvechein of El HaMelech. So now let's take a little journey together to understand why this is that there is this connection. But we're not going to give the answer right away. We're going to first discuss a few other things, and then we're going to get back to it. And hopefully at the end, we'll have a clarity in this connection and maybe a little bit of insight into what we're about to enter into come this Yom Kippurim. There was a great rabbi by the name of Aaron of Karlin, one of the great Hasidic masters. And... The story goes that when the Chazan said Hamelech by Shacharit, I don't know what the Minak by Sardim is, but by Ashkenazim, they, there is like a very big to do by Hamelech. Hamelech, Yoshev, Alkisei, Yoshev, Hamelech, Yoshev, Alkisei, Romanisa. The king. And when the Chazan begins, Hamelech, that's like when the, meaning there's, some, there's a Chazan that starts in the morning, the Pesukah de Zimra, and then Shachris begins, like right before Yishtabach, by Hamelech. That's the first word. And as soon as he heard the word Hamelech, as soon as the Chazan started saying the word Hamelech, Rav Aaron of Karlin fainted on the spot. And when he was revived, he, somebody asked him, Rebbe, what, did, what happened? Why did you faint? So he said, there's a Gemara in Gittin that everybody learns on Tishabav. The, the Gemara basically says that Rabbi Yechen ben Zakkai, one of the great leaders during the time of the second Beis HaMikdash, by the, around the time of the Churban, so he snuck out of Yerushalayim because Yerushalayim was sort of um, besieged by the Romans, and he was able to sneak out, he was able to figure out a way out. Anyway, he, he made his way to the great Roman general, and he asked the great Roman general, um, he was going to ask him to save certain parts of Klal Yisrael, but before he did that, he told the Roman, what was at the time the Roman general, but he would ultimately soon thereafter become the king of Rome, the Caesar, so he said, Shalom Allah Malka. When he greeted this general, Rabbi Echemen the general, he said, Shalom Alecha, king. So the general said, you're high of Misa for saying that. You should be killed. Why? Because first of all, I'm not the king. I'm just a general. And you're married to Malchus. You're going up against the king. You're, you're ba- There's a king. And you can't call somebody else a king if he's not the king yet. That's first of all. And he says, um, and also, furthermore, if I am the king, then what took you so long to sneak out to get to me? 
if I'm so powerful, then you should have come to me earlier. Why did it take you this long until you finally came to me if I'm actually the king? They didn't have communication right, you know, in those days that we know instantaneously. When, and then sure enough, a messenger came while they were talking and said, you're the king. The old king died and you are the new king. Rebbe Karlin said, as soon as I heard the Chazan say, HaMelech, I fainted because I remembered that question. If Hashem is really the king, then what took me so long to come before him? Why did it take me till Rosh Hashanah, till Yom Kippur, to come before him finally in earnest and, and, and daven and really feel his presence? If he's the king, then I should have come right away. I should have come much earlier than this. And that's why I fainted. The problem with our, and I'll speak for myself, I'm sure all of you don't have this problem, but the problem with me and many, many others in terms of davening properly, in terms of behaving properly, in terms of you know, only doing mitzvahs and never doing averis, why shouldn't that be? We know that there's a king. If I know that there's a king and I know that Hashem is watching my every move and that he is really in control of the world, so why is it so difficult for me to always do the right, I should always be able to do the right thing. It should be easy. I should have no yetzara. Should never ever talk lashon hara. Should never ever look at something or listen to something or or go someplace or think about. How do I do that? There's a king. The answer is that yes, there's a king, and we all know intellectually that the Rebbeinu Shalom Hashem exists and that He runs the show. We know that on an intellectual level. But there's a problem with living that way. What's our problem? Our problem is that we can't see Hashem, we can't really hear Hashem, we can't feel Hashem. He's not a tangible being. When you're dealing with a king, a physical king, you know, with all of the pomp and circumstance that surrounds him, it's pretty easy to understand the power of a, of a monarch. But Hashem, for reasons that he chose, because of Bechira, he is not visible to our eyes. In the Mesilat Yisharim, the Ramchal, writes about this in his Sefer. He says that the biggest problem with Emunah and Bitochen is that we can't see him. His Lashon is, Ya'an ein hachush oizer lozek klau. The chush, the sense, the senses that we have, all of our five senses, aren't helpful. They're, they're not working for me. They're not, I don't see him. I don't hear him. I don't touch him. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, it's not, it's not tangible for me. A human being is a very, we like things tangible. We like to see things. We like to understand things. And if I don't see something, I don't automatically always register it as a reality. There's a, a beautiful story that's told about Rebolbi. Shlomo Rebolbi was a, um, a great mashkiach. He was probably the tower and musr personality of, of his time. I, I was zaychet to, when I learned in yeshiva in Yerushalayim, uh, I learned in yeshiva called Kaltara. And Kaltara is, uh, was Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach's yeshiva. But on Shabbos, they, we would have this chus of having Rav Shlomo Rebolbi, who wrote, anyone know what sefer he wrote? And it will be the Ali Shur. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty well-known Musr Sefer. 
and he would come to the yeshiva, he was an old man by then, and he would give lectures between Mincha and Ma'ariv on Shabbos, after, on Shabbos afternoon, like before the end of Shabbos. I was a young American kid. I didn't really understand who this rabbi was. So, you know, I would go to some of them, I would miss some of them. Today, you know, I'm a mashkiach in, in Queens, a mashkiach Ruchani, and I, I live on Revolvi's Torah. Like, his Torah is, like, supreme. And I'm, like, kicking myself that I didn't go to every single one of those classes. I didn't, I didn't appreciate it. When you're young, you don't always appreciate, you know, what you have. But Revolvi went to visit Reb Chatzko Levenstein. Reb Chatzko Levenstein was the towering Musser personality. And when he died, he sort of, Revolvi became that. So these two great Musser giants once met each other. Or Revolvi went to meet him. And what happened was that they were speaking in, in learning, they were discussing words of Torah. And then at the end of their meeting, um, Revolvi asked Reb Chatzko Levenstein, is there something that I should share from the Mashkiach, meaning from Reb Chatzko, with my Talmidim? He had a very big yeshiva called Ber Yaakovis. I'm going back to my yeshiva. Tell me something like that I could share with my Talmidim. And Revolvi thought he would share like a very, very, you know, beautiful piece of Torah, Musr, some Chazal, he says, okay, I'll, come here, I'll, I'll tell you something you should tell your Bachram. He says, go into the base Medrash, go into the Beit Medrash, and give a, a clock, give a pound on the, on the bima, on the stender, and say, Rabbi Sai, meaning everyone in the room, there is a God in the world. So Revolvi looked a little confused. I'm not going back to it. I'm not, I'm not a, a Rebbe in a, in, a, in, you know, in a public school that, that I have to teach. These are very advanced Talmudic Talmudicham. These are budding B'nai Torah. These are great, great Talmudim that I have. They don't need to, to hear that, you know, there's a God in the world. That's like for elementary. That, that's, so, that's so basic. He says, no. He says, it's not so basic. Everybody has to be constantly reminded that there's a God in this world because we forget. We claim, that's not to say that we don't believe in God and we don't daven Hashem and we don't, but unless you're constantly reminding yourself that there's Hashem in the world, it's easy to put it out of your mind. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. In case you're looking at me like I'm crazy, well, every time we do any sin, every time we do any avera. Isn't it, in a sense, a denial of Hashem? Think about it. We know when, we speak, when we're about to speak Lashonara, okay? And we're tempted, and we know in our, you know, if we've been in seminary here, and we've been in high schools, we've been in elementary schools, how many times has the rabbis and the, and the rabbinis, how, how many times have we heard how bad Lashonara is? A million times. But yet we say it. How does that happen? I don't go into McDonald's and eat cheeseburgers, but for some reason I, I go and I, I'm able to speak Lashonara. How do I do that? The answer is that temporarily, temporarily, I turn my brain off for a moment, and I put God on the, like, on the back shelf, and I, I do it, and then, I, and then I'm religious again. Rabdesla writes about this. He says, every Avera, in a sense, 
is an act of kfirah. It's an act of denial of God. Because you can't do a sin unless you're, I'm not talking about people that have no idea about God and you know, they're just sinning because they don't know any better. We know better, so how do we sin? The answer is that we're not able always to remember that there's a God in the world. Or we choose not to. So how do we do this? How are we able to really understand and see? We, we can't see, we can't hear, we can't... I'll put that as a question. How do, you, how do you do it? How do you remember that there's a God in the world? How do you remember that Hashem exists? Where do you see Hashem? Perfect, right. There's something in life called hashkacha pratis. Hashkacha pratis is that everything, everything happens by Hashem, and very often if your antennas are up in life, you're able to really see it very, very clearly. I want to give you a few examples of this, a few stories. Some of them happened to me. Some of them happened to great rabbis. But I'm going to give you a few stories that I think really bring this home, and I think you could probably tell me a lot of great stories in your own life. A number of years ago, about three, four years ago, we were doing, we living, I lived with my family in Kew Garden Hills in Queens, and um, we used to live in Brooklyn, actually, in Flatbush uh, before that for many years, but then when, um, anyway, we moved to Queens for, for um, the position that I took. And... We did construction on our house. So, uh, anyway, we were redoing the kitchen, among other things in the house. So listen to this story. We were supposed to meet with the contractor and the kitchen guy on a certain Thursday. And it didn't work out. The kitchen guy wasn't able to come, and they, everyone decided that instead of doing it Thursday, let's meet on a Friday. All right, Friday is not really the best day. It's Arab Shabbat and whatever, but okay, we met Friday. So I was in, la- in, in my yeshiva that morning, and then my, um, so, and my wife, who was living at the time, you know, we were living by my mother in Long Beach, in Long Island, um, she came also to meet with the kids. She wasn't even supposed to come, but she decided she wanted to come also. The kitchen guy came, and the contractor came. And it was pouring rain. Thursday was a beautiful day. Friday was like torrential, torrential rain. My son, my little son, my youngest, his name is Yitzi, he played hooky from school that day for some reason. And not that that's such a rarity, but he played hooky and he decided he wanted to come with my wife to meet here at the, at the house. So I was coming from one direction. My wife was coming with Yitzi from Long Beach. Um, and then my contractor came. It was pouring rain. You've never seen rain like this. Crazy rain. Let me back up a minute. When we started the contracting job, I asked the contractor, could I leave like my books in the basement? Because we weren't doing work on the basement. So, and my... My great-great-grandfather, who lived in Germany in the 1800s, was a, one of the biggest rabbis of his time, 
And my father, Alev Shalom, whose yard site, by the way, his, uh, you know, he passed away today. So it's very special, and I want to dedicate this year to him, Reb Tzvi ben Reb Alevi. So he, uh, he inherited these, this great library. And then when he passed away eight years ago, a lot of it came to me, and we had it in the house. So I didn't know where to, where to put these books, because these are priceless. If these books would be gone, then I would, you know, I'd be gone. It would be like really very devastating to my family. Like it, these are books that escape the Holocaust and whatever. For it to get ruined now would be like devastating. So I asked him, I said, listen, I could keep it elsewhere. I could keep it in my office, you know, out of the house. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be able to keep it in the basement? He says, no, there's no reason whatsoever. There's nothing that could happen in the basement. We're just doing construction upstairs. Okay, now let's get back to our story. That day was pouring rain. My son Yitzi needed, you'll excuse me, to use the restroom. And he had a choice because the bathroom on the first floor was gone because that was construction area. We could either, he could either go upstairs or downstairs to the basement. He decided, Baruch Hashem, to go downstairs to the basement. And then he calls up to me, he says, Tati, there's a swimming pool in the basement. So I give the contractor the dirtiest look that I could, and I say, to, I, 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 you know, we run downstairs, and because of something the contractor did wrong, there was water that was not just dripping through the windows of the basement, but it was gushing. It was coming up like at about an inch a minute, I would say. Crazy amounts of, of water coming in. I ran to the room where we kept, where, we, where all these boxes of these old priceless svarim were, and we were making like an assembly line to get all these upstairs, the contractor and the kitchen guy, and everyone was like quickly getting them, Baruch Hashem, the books are perfectly dry and, and fine. But think about it this way. Let's say, instead of meeting on Friday, we would have met on Thursday. The whole basin would have been flooded because we weren't there Friday. Nobody was going to be there on Friday. If, let's say, we had been there Friday, but Yitzi had decided not to play hooky that day, so nobody would have gone down to the basement. The only reason why I still have that very, very precious library in my possession is because there's a God in the world. Hashem was orchestrating, and it's clear. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be like a very big maimon, a very big believer in God, to put these, to connect the dots. There's a God in the world, and Hashem did not want me to have to go through all of that aggravation. He didn't want those svarim to get lost. So he created, an, uh, he rearranged all of the all the facts and all of the circumstances just so that just so that everything would work out okay. That shows, like you're saying, that's basically, that's proof positive that there's a God in the world. I don't see God, but I see very clearly what he does. I see how he controls everything in the world. Recently I saw a very interesting story about a certain rabbi from Israel. His name was Rabbi Elephant. And Rabbi Elephant is, uh, he was a very, he was a, a very big rabbi, big Talmud Chacham, also a very interesting personality. He had a yeshiva called Itri. It's a, it's a Rashi Tevis of something. And he was going to, uh, he had an, a secretary in his yeshiva. Her name was 
Um, her name was Felice. Felice. She was uh, from America, and he hired her as a secretary. She was, uh, she was a very, very from girl, and uh, in fact, she was such a great person and such a fine you know, individual that Rabbi Elephant and his wife decided to set her up with like one of the best guys in the kollel, in the, in the kollel in, uh, in, uh, in his yeshiva, in Itri. And they actually went out and they hit it off and they were about to get engaged. At this point, Rabbi Elephant made a trip to America to do some fundraising. And he stayed in a certain woman's house and this woman was very peculiar. Like she didn't give him to eat unless he was home at when she was serving supper or when she was serving breakfast, he wasn't allowed to eat. So, and he was never able to come exactly. You know, he was busy fundraising, he was running here, running there. So basically for three days in America, he pretty much didn't eat a thing. He was famished. And then he had to make a stopover in England to continue doing more fundraising for Zeshiva. And in England, he was really famished because even like the kosher meal that he was supposed to get on the plane from New York to London, there was no kosher meal on the plane. He said he was ready to eat the seats. He was so hungry. What happened was that he came to London and he was staying in a hotel and he, was, he called a cab, some random cab in, in, in England, to take him from his hotel room to... The, um, to, a, to a restaurant, a kosher restaurant, some 70 minutes away. That's how hungry he was. And anyway, he was famished, he was exhausted, and this cab driver, some random cab driver in the middle of the thing, said to him, oh, it uh, looks like you're a rabbi. So Rabbi Elephant was sitting in the back, he like, didn't want it. He says, yeah, I, I'm a rabbi. He says, where are you from? He says, I'm from Jerusalem. He says... Wow, he says, do you know Rabbi Elephant? So Rabbi Elephant was like, how in the world does this cab driver know my name? Like, imagine like taking a cab in, uh, you know, in, in who knows where, in Europe, it's in, in Paris, and somebody knows your name, it doesn't make sense. So he says, uh, he, but he, on the other hand, he was so tired and exhausted and hungry that he didn't want to engage the guy. He says, yeah, I know Rabbi Elephant, he, he's a terrible guy, he's a terrible guy. So he thought that that would end the conversation, but this cab driver became so angry at him. He says, how can you say that? Rabbi Elephant's amazing. My daughter, Felice, she works for him. She, he's her boss, and he always, she tells me how wonderful he is. And she even, he even uh, proposed uh, uh, you know, a, a potential uh, marriage for her with a man with a beard. And uh, you know, this, so the elephant, like, uh, you know, and then he started telling him his story. He started telling the elephant his whole life story, that he's Jewish, um, and his wife is not Jewish, and they got married, and they had this daughter, Felice, and she lived in a certain neighborhood, and she became friendly with a lot of religious girls, religious Jewish girls, and, and because she, her father was Jewish, she automatically always assumed that she was Jewish, and she became more religious and more religious, and she went to Israel, and there she... So the elephant says, oh my gosh, Felice is not Jewish. Her mother's not Jewish, and I'm setting her up with like the best guy in my kollel. Like, this is crazy. Anyway, he dropped him off at, at the restaurant, and he was waiting for him in the car when he got... He took some food out of the restaurant. 
And then he, uh, he came back in the car. He showed him, his, he showed him his, his passport. And he says, I'm Rabbi Elephant. He said, I'm Rabbi Elephant. Um, and, you know, it's a pleasure. Your daughter's wonderful and so happy. But Rabbi Elephant understood at that moment that Hashem sent him to New York and then sent him to England, put him in a random... You know how many cabs there are in England? There's probably... 100,000 cabs maybe in England. And out of all of 100,000 cabs, he was put in this one cab with a cab driver that knew Rabbi Elephant, the father of his secretary, who revealed to him that his, that his secretary is not Jewish. He went back to the hotel. He called his, his Rebetzin. He called his wife, Rabbi Elephant, and he said, Felice is not Jewish. She said, how do you know that? He says, long story. He says, we have to start the process of being Mikhayer, of converting her, you know, because, you know, she should be Jewish, she's amazing, whatever. And for the next three days when he was in England, this, this cab driver basically did not go home. He stayed outside of Rabbi Elephant's hotel, and anywhere and anything Rabbi Elephant needed, he was there to drive him around from coast to coast in England, just whatever he needed to do, whatever he wanted him to do, he was there. He came back to Israel. He arranged that this Felice converted, and she ended up marrying this Kolo guy. Today they have 11 children. But you see Hashem. I mean, you know, it's really, if you understand that these things are true, you understand there's a God in the world. There has to be. There's a Melech. How do we know there's a Melech? Because... Hashgacha Pratis, every single thing, anything that you observe that happens in your life shows like a thousand witnesses attest to the fact that there's Hashem. Hashem exists. We don't see Him and we don't hear Him. We don't feel Him. But it's so clear that He's here through all of these stories, all of these, these, these impossible, the, the odds are simply impossible that there should be anything other than that. Let me tell you one final story about Yom Kippur. There's a great rabbi who lives in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. He is a son-in-law of Rabbi Yashiv, the great Posek. And Rabbi Zilberstein says the following incredible story. Once he was flying on an airplane somewhere from Israel to America, and sitting next to him was a person by the name of Mr. Weinstein, clearly a Jew, who lived in Israel. And... So he was ordering, you know, Rabbi Zilberstein, of course, ordered the, the, the glatt kosher meal, the really, the really kosher meal. Mr. Weinstein, not only did he not order the glatt kosher meal, he, he, he didn't get kosher food at all. He was eating, you know, not kosher food right next to Rabbi Zilberstein. So Rabbi Zilberstein looks to him, he says, Mr. Weinstein, he saw on the, you know, on the, on the meal, it said his name. It said, Mr. Weinstein, he says, are you aware that you could get kosher food? You're Jewish, you shouldn't be eating non-kosher food. So he says, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. He says, I don't want to eat kosher food. I want to eat non-kosher food. So he said, why? Like, you're Jewish. Like, why, if you have a choice, like, you know, like, shouldn't you at least try to eat kosher if they're offering? It's the same thing, pretty much. He says, no. He says, I went through the Holocaust. And I lost my wife. I lost my entire family. 
He said, I had one son left that was still with me in the camps. And wherever I went, we held hands. We were like together. And I would not let go. He was my entire life. Whatever was left of my life was in him. And his name was Katriel Menachem. At the end of, uh, you know, one night, there was, uh, everybody was supposed to come and gather at a certain point. And this was, uh, there was like a firing line and we knew that the end was near. So my son was so nervous. He was squeezing my hand. My hand like stopped, all the blood stopped circulating. That's how scared he was. And we decided together we were going to run off. But things happened so quickly that we got separated. And I never saw him again. And somebody told me that he was killed by the Nazis. And since that happened, I'm so angry with God that I don't know if I believe in him. And whatever God says to do, I'm going to do the opposite. So if he's saying to eat kosher, I'm going to eat non-kosher. I have no interest whatsoever in serving a God that could do that to me and my family. So... And that was it. Basically, they landed and they said goodbye, the rabbi and Mr. Weinstein, and, and that was it. Fast forward a few years later, and Rabbi Zilberstein was davening on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim, he was davening in Mea Sharim, a very, you know, the very religious part of Yerushalayim. And he went out for some fresh air in the middle of the prayers, and he sees a person smoking on the street on Yom Kippur. Now, you know, in Israel, and even here, most people, most Jews, they try to, at least on Yom Kippur, if there's one day a year that they refrain from doing anything wrong with Yom Kippur. Even, you know, famous baseball players, a famous baseball player called Sandy Koufax. The only reason why I know him, and anybody, and many, many other people know him, he was, a, he was playing, I think it was in the World Series, but he was Jewish, he said, I'm not pitching. He was a great pitcher, he was supposed to pitch on Yom Kippur for the World Series. He says, I can't because it's Yom Kippur. Every Jew in their heart of heart understands that Yom Kippur is special. But then Rabbi Zilberstein comes out in Meisharm, he sees a man smoking on Yom Kippur in Meisharm, was such an anomaly, was such a strange sight. So what he did was, he walked over to him, he says, uh, you know, excuse me, sir, but, and as he was, you know, starting to engage in the conversation, he says, oh my gosh, Mr. Weinstein, haven't seen you in, a, in so long, we, we haven't met, remember me, I, the rabbi was sitting next to you on the airplane, kosher meals, we were talking, he told me your, your whole story, he says, yeah, I remember. And clearly he was still very angry with Hashem, and he was smoking on Yom Kippurim. So, so the rabbi said to Mr. Weinstein, he said, I'm in the middle of praying to Yom Kippur. He says, we're up to Yizkar. Yizkar is the part of davening on Yom Kippur where you remember the, you know, the, the, all the people that died and that were killed and departed. And, and it's a very emotional prayer on Yom Kippur. He says, come into the shul with me and at least say a prayer for your son. It's an opportunity to bring your son's name, you know, to elevate his neshama, elevate his soul on high. Just do me that favor. Come in. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to cost anything. Just come in. And for some reason, Mr. Weinstein had a, a moment of softness in his heart, and he, he agreed. And they go over to the chazan, and... 
the rabbi arranged that the chazan should make a special, a special mention of this boy who was killed in the Holocaust in front of everybody. So he goes over to the chazan and he says, I want you to make a special mention of this young man's name who perished in the Holocaust. He says, okay, well, what's his name? So the father, you know, this, this uh, Mr. Weinstein says, his name is Katriel Menachem Ben Yecheskel Shraga. The chazan looks at Mr. Weinstein and says, Abba. And he faints. And they are reunited. It's a crazy story. After all those years, he wasn't killed. He was alive. And he was, they met in Meisharim in a shul. That's Hashkafa Pratis. That shows there's a God and Hashem is moving all the pieces around. We think that, you know, we don't understand this and we don't understand that and we can't figure out this and that and everything is like a mystery to us. But sometimes if you're able to see the bigger picture, you see that there's Hashem in the world. There's no question that there's Hashem in the world. If you're able to be open-minded and to see, see all these little things, and again, I know that all of you probably could talk about this for days, and what I always suggest to my students, and I started doing it also myself, is I keep a journal. I keep like a diary or like a notebook of, and I wrote on the cover, Hashkacha Pratis. And every single time something like this happens, it doesn't have to be like a big you know, thing. It could be just a small little thing that happened. You know, my son, is, my oldest son, is learning in Israel. So he, uh, he was supposed to take a, talking a lot about airplanes today. He was supposed to take an Air uh, France, like to stop off in Paris and then go to Yerushalayim to go to Israel, and because uh, that's where all his friends run. That's where the yeshiva told him to book that flight to go as a group with quarantine, the whole thing. And it was up to me. And for some reason, sometimes I get absent-minded and I completely forgot. I completely forgot to do it. And it was. And we didn't understand where the ticket was and where you know. And my son asked me like, you know. Am I on this flight? Well, my friends are on it. Like, where, where's my ticket to? So I said, I said, it's coming. I, I, for, I thought that I, whatever. Anyway, in the end, I didn't, he didn't have a ticket on this flight. And, you know, he was a little disappointed because all of his friends were going together on this plane. So I called the travel agent. I got him a ticket on, on, on British Airways. He stopped in London. And uh, he went on from there to Israel. And then, and I felt bad. And then, like, he called me when he landed in Israel and he was in quarantine for two weeks, and uh, he said, Ty, you don't understand. He said, all my friends that went on that Air Paris flight, their luggage is gone. They lost their luggage. It's nowhere to be found. They went there, you know, one guy's luggage is in Hungary, one is in Hawaii, one is in, uh, you know, in, in South Africa. They don't know if they're, they'll, they'll see their luggage again. He says... But because you booked me on British Airways, my, I have my luggage, Baruch Hashem. I can get dressed for Shabbos. I have everything I need. My fill in it. That's Hashkacha Pratis. It's plain and simple. So should I have been better in, you know, in, in booking the ticket as it was? Yes. But at the end of the day, Hashem exists. Hashem is here. Which holiday of all holidays makes us realize this that, I'm, that we're talking about today. Hashkacha Pratis. The holiday of Purim. 
Purim was not a holiday like Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, where we're talking about miracles. We're not talking about miracles. We're not talking about splitting seas and, and about you know, God coming down on a mountain and giving the, the, the tablets and the Aserahs that they brought. And we're not talking about that. Purim has no major miracles. Purim is everything was the Hester Panim. That's why Esther, her name is Esther. Esther means hidden. The miracle was hidden. If you would be living in Persia at the time of Purim, you wouldn't even know that anything strange was taking place. There was some palace intrigue, there was something going on with the queen, and you, you read about it in the, in the papers maybe. You know, one queen you know, got killed and the next queen you know, came up and, and you know, things are happening, Haman and Mardukai, but everything was, was over a long period of time, many years. It didn't happen like, you know, as quickly as we lay in the Megillah, as we, as we read the Megillah. It was, you wouldn't know but Hashem was orchestrating every single thing that was happening. Everything that was happening was Hashkacha Pratis. In retrospect, we see that. We see it clearly how everything that was happening, every step of the way, was Hashem. It was divine providence. So when we celebrate Purim, Purim is really the day that we're able to see the Melech, even though we don't see him, but we understand that he exists. In fact, we know that every single time the word Hamelech appears in the Megillah, and it appears many times, whenever it says the word Hamelech, it's always referring to Hashem. Unless it says Hamelech Achashverosh, which is very rare, but every time it says just the word Hamelech, it's referring to the Melech Malchamelech. And you know why? Because the point of Purim is to understand that Hashem is our Melech, even when we can't see Him. But everything happening in the world, whether it's politically, whether it's personally, there's nothing that's happening without Hashem's complete jurisdiction. Everything that's taking place, every step of the way, every second, every moment of our life is for a reason, and it's by divine orchestration. Hashem is orchestrating, like a, like a conductor in a big symphony, everything is by Hashem's orchestration. That's Purim. And now I think we can come back and answer that mysterious statement of the Arizal that we started with. When he asks, when he says that Yom Kippurim is Yom Kippurim. How is Yom Kippur like Purim? Well, Purim is the day, in one sentence, that we recognize Hashem through Hashgacha Pratis. Yom HaKippurim if we want to understand that Hashem exists and we want to be able to cry in our machzorim on Yom Kippur and to recognize Hamelach when the Chazan says Hamelach that we are very, very aware and cognizant that He exists and that even though maybe throughout the whole year we forget or we choose to forget that He exists but on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur as the Hasidic Sarim write the Melech is in the field the King is in the field we just have to go out and greet Him He's here but how do I remember that? How do I know that? I know that because Hashkacha Pratis reminds us of that. Now, I know it without Hashkacha, I know it intellectually, but how do I know it really? Intellectually is very nice, but we know it doesn't always help us. Every time we say Lashon Hara intellectually, we know there's a God, but it doesn't stop me from speaking. So how do we actually stop ourselves from sinning? How do we actually get into the mode of Yom Kippurim and realize that there's Hashem, that there's the Melech in the world, and that we have to come before Him, we have to cry, we have to confess, we have to do tshuva. 
why? Like, what's gonna, what, 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 what's gonna animate me to do that? What's gonna energize? What, what, what motivates me to do that? It's aser simet shuba right now. Are we very conscientious now that Hashem really, really, really exists? The only way to do that is by talking about these stories, by reminding ourselves of Ashkach Pratis. And when we see, like on Purim, how every single thing happens for a purpose, then it's an altogether different Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim, if Purim is embedded in Yom Kippurim, it's a different Yom Kippurim. Because Yom Kippur is a day that we say, wow, I know there's a God. It's not, it's not deniable that Hashem exists. There's a Melech, and I have to really focus on his Malchus. He's the king, and if he's the king, I, I have to come back to him, and I have to cry before him, and I have to plead before him for mercy, and I have to do tshuva to him, and I have to ask him for all that I need. There's so much that I need for the coming year. I need all the people that are so sick in the world from Corona or from other things to have refuah shleima. I need to. I need all the people that need parnasah to have parnasah. I need. I need so much, and we all have our own personal needs. And Yom Kippur is the day that, like my grandmother, you go and you stand with your machzor with Hashem. And it's the most beautiful day in the world. The greatest day of the year is Yom Kippur. For people that are mature and understand what we're speaking about today, you look forward to Yom Kippur because it's a day that it's just me and Hashem. There's no distractions. There's no eating. And there's no uh, you know, driving a car. There's no cell phones. There's, no, there's nothing. It's just me and Hashem and my mother. And Purim brings out Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is the lesson of Purim. Without Purim, I don't know if we would really appreciate Yom Kippurim because we wouldn't understand fully how great Hashem is and how He's really, really in front of us. But with Purim, with Purim in our minds and in our hearts, we're able, we'll be able to really have a meaningful Yom Kippur because now we really understand. And this, we don't need the Beis HaMikdash to have the Shekhinah everything, you know, miracles every minute in front of our eyes because even in Galut, we're able to sense Hashem's existence through all of the Purim activities that happen throughout the year. I'd like to just leave off with a, a bracha to all of you that you should have a wonderful year and it should be a year full of smachot. Everything that you want, everything that you need, everything that you pray for, Hashem should be memali mishalas libchem letova. And the reason why we say that is because not everything that we always ask for is what's good. Sometimes we're asking Hashem for things, and he, you know, he doesn't think it's good. I'll, you know, my my kids always ask me for a uh, for a scooter. You know, the the razor. It's like a scooter. So, and I always deprive them. All their friends had scooters. And I always told my kids, and they was, come on, Ty, you know, everybody has a scooter. Everyone has a razor. Get me. It's not so expensive. What's the big deal? I said, I don't know, but I have a premonition that it's dangerous. I, that my kids should not be having this. I don't know why. I'm not, I'm not crazy. Or at least I don't think I am. But I, I always, t- I, I just didn't want them to have it. I don't let them go ice skating either for a similar reason. But um, they only therapy. But I think they're they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. But my uh, 
So finally, this Yitzi that I spoke about before, he doesn't stop. He's just so tenacious, and if he wants something, he does not give up. So it's, it was his birthday in the summer, and we went to Target. I needed to shop for something else. Of course, he slipped away from me, and he found the razor aisle, and he comes to me, they're on sales, $24, and please get it. I said, okay, you know what, I can't, I can't fight you anymore. I said, we'll buy you the razor. He's so happy. He came home, he ripped open the box, and then I went into the house, and I was speaking to my wife, and then literally two minutes later, he comes, he comes in, he has this huge, huge cut on his foot, on his knee, his gushing blood. I said, Yitzi, what happened? He said, no, I tripped on the step coming in, because, you know, <laughs> so I said, come on. I said, I have cameras outside the house. I'm going to check. He said, okay, Ty, I fell off the razor, and I, you were right. He hasn't touched that razor. It's still in my wife's car. It's sitting there, like, pristine. I'm waiting to return it someday. But, so not everything that we want is always for our good. A lot of times, like, like we're asking Hashem, give me the razor. And Hashem says, I, I, I don't want to give you the razor. It's not good for you. Sometimes, you know, Hashem is allowed to say no to us. So don't get angry if you're not getting what you think you want or what you think you need, because ultimately Hashem is here. Hashem is, loves us all enough to say no to us also. But the things that you are supposed to have and the things that you deserve and the things that, and you all deserve the best because you're all, Baruch Hashem, such great people, I could see it. So those are things that they're all decided this time of year, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. And so if you really come to Shul and you daven and you give it all and you remember Purim and you remember how Hashem is so here and now you just spend your day with your machzer just davening and crying and just putting everything in, all of your focus into Hashem and how he's the melech and how I'm his subject and how he takes care of me and how I know that everything is going to be good, then there's no doubt that HaKadosh Baruch will make Tavshim Pe'ala for a year that's full of bracha, full of atzlacha, full of everything that you need. And it's been a real pleasure to be here and I thank you so much.